everyone, welcome to a very exciting weekend of Script Apart specials. I'm Al Horner and this is what we're calling the Storyteller Sessions. Three days of career-spanning conversations with truly game-changing storytellers talking about their relationship with the page. 100% of proceeds are going to the Entertainment Community Fund, a brilliant charity doing hugely important work. So if you enjoy this episode or any of the episodes to come this weekend, please do consider hitting the link in today's show notes and donating to that great cause. Today we're kicking things off with what is basically the Catalina wine mixer of podcast interviews. There I said it. My guest is a filmmaker responsible for some of the great comedies of our time, whose storytelling has undergone a fascinating transformation as the world has slipped into climate emergency, economic emergency and political disrepair. Somehow in a time with dwindling things to laugh about, this writer-director has found a way to engage with these crises in ludicrously entertaining ways. Yes, he's the filmmaker behind Anchorman, Step Brothers, Talladega Nights, The Other Guys, The Big Short, Vice, and Don't Look Up. It's the one and only Adam McKay. Adam has been a US comedy mainstay since he got his break on Saturday Night Live in 1995. His collaborations on SNL with another emerging comic, Will Ferrell, immediately caught the eye and simply could not be contained to the small screen for long. By the early noughties, the pair had turned their anarchic chemistry into a wave of outrageously quotable comedies that fast found themselves woven into our shared pop culture landscape. It escalated quickly, as Ron Burgundy might say. Then in 2015 came a change of pace. After his father lost his home as part of a devastating economic downturn, Adam released The Big Short, a white-collar crime comedy about the 2007 financial crash and those responsible. It won him and his co-writer, Charles Randolph, the Best Adapted Screenplay Oscar at that year's Academy Awards. Even more importantly, it signalled a sea change, not just in the content of Adam's movies going forward, but also in the cinematic language he was using to tell these tales. His films since then, and to a lesser degree, titles he's worked on as a producer, such as the smash hit Succession, have doubled down on that new storytelling style, full of frantic edits and experimental flourishes. Adam's monumental success has come in the face of a couple of challenging moments medically across his life. In the year 2000, he was diagnosed with a condition known as essential tremor, and in 2017, he suffered a heart attack on the set of Vice. In the conversation you're about to hear, we discuss how that heart attack sharpened his resolve to make 2021's bracing Don't Look Up. We get into why Step Brothers is a film that tells you all you need to know about America, a nation in which consumer culture has turned us into children, he says. You'll hear why he decided to abandon the three-act structure of his old films, in part as a response to the rise of Donald Trump, and what he's learned about how to fix the world from his recent string of movies grappling with its many problems. Again, this conversation is in aid of the Entertainment Community Fund, who do extraordinary work lifting up storytellers of all descriptions. If you enjoy this episode, as I mentioned earlier, please do consider clicking the link in today's show notes and donating any amount you can spare. Okay, with that out the way, let's get into it. This is Adam McKay's Script Apart Storyteller Session in aid of the Entertainment Community Fund. 
Thank you guys so much for listening and a huge thank you to all of you donating. You're listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Camille Demek. Adam McKay, thank you so much for being with us. How's it going today? Good, 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 good. Thanks for having me. Glad to hear it. Well, this conversation, Adam, I'm not going to lie, it's been a long time coming for me on a personal level. I have loved your work my entire adult life, basically. And uh, yeah, in fact, I can tell you precisely where my relationship with your filmmaking began. I was on a flight as a teenager. I don't know where to or where from, but what I do recall is that Anchorman was one of the in-flight movies. And <laughs> I laughed so hard and so unrelentingly that the person next to me who was trying to sleep they switch seats. <laughs> there's, there's a good chance they thought there was something wrong with me. I was laughing that maniacally. I love it. Um, so yeah, that was where it began for me. Uh, let me begin this podcast, Adam, by asking, when you look back on that era of your work, does it feel like the same guy? Because there's a gravitas and an urgency to your work nowadays that means people often discuss your new body of work as almost by a totally different filmmaker, as if there's, you know, Adam McKay, the maker of those deranged comedies back then, and there's Adam McKay, the kind of more dramatic chronicler of, of these modern American declines. So yeah, I was wondering if, if there are through lines to you, whether there's less of a chasm between, say, Anchorman and a film like Vice than people might think, or, or where you stand on that question. Yeah, I think the emotional drive behind all of that stuff. And even if you go back to my time writing for the sketch comedy show here in the States, uh, Saturday Night Live, and even my time in theater in Chicago in the early 90s, I, I just always have believed that diving into the waters of, you know, huge issues, corruption, uh, changing culture, inequality, all that kind of stuff. And now, obviously, the climate emergency that, like, dealing with real stuff can also be really funny. And that stuff that's really funny with a through line of the actual stuff in the middle of it with, you know, sort of axes that you're grinding, questions that you're asking. That combination has always been my favorite combination. I would say the thing that changed is, you know, the times changed. Uh, you know, in the 90s, there was a specific kind of thing happening in the world. You had the rise of Bill Clinton and Tony Blair, which now we would call sort of the rise of the neoliberal kind of corporatists. Uh, you had people sort of stepping away from being activists or really pressuring leaders because the marketing and entertainment was rising. And then you go into the 2000s and more disturbing stuff started to happen with the Iraq war and, uh, you know, then the banking, uh, world banking collapse. 
And now you sort of throw the, <laughs> the climate crisis into it, and it's quite a saucepan. So the sort of calculus of how much is absurd funny, how much is funny but a little more dramatic, like that's kind of always changing and always has been. Um, and there was a point where after the housing collapse and my awareness of, you know, what trouble we were in with our governments being so overrun by big money and extremism or indifference mixed with, you know, like my dad lost his house in the economic collapse and stuff started to get really real and also burgeoning awareness of uh, you know, sexism, classism, racism. Uh, so, yeah, I always look at it as kind of responding to the times we're living in. And there's kind of there's nothing more depressing to me than the idea of making something that's just kind of empty. Uh, so I love to laugh. I, you know, it's my favorite thing to do. So I, I really view laughter and comedy as a, a really powerful force, uh, not something that's frivolous. It's a populist, real kind of thing, like hard out loud laughter, like you laughing on that plane when you were young. Like that is the best. And the fact that someone had to move away from you, like every bit of that <laughs> is just the best. Because uh, there's some people that get really uncomfortable with laughter. It's like it to them, it's almost like a bodily function or it's low or it's out of control. So. Yeah, I would say everything that I've done has always been because I started more in comedy is all sort of an interaction with the world. And, you know, some of the things we do are going to be funnier and more absurd, like don't look up. And some are going to be a little more dramatic, like Big Short. But, you know, there's still plenty of good laughs in the Big Short Oh, absolutely. It, it is interesting going back to those films that I laughed at and laughed at as a kid and seeing them again through the prism, I suppose, of, of where your filmmaking has gone since. Like reevaluating that work now, knowing about your preoccupations with power, with corruption, with the media, it, it does kind of throw a whole new light on them. In fact, um, at the risk of sounding fully like a crazy person, I was watching Anchorman again recently, and I found myself thinking about the election night episode of Succession, how there's actually kind of some connective tissue there. Anchorman is uh, about this kind of gloriously dopey age of media in which TV is just waking up to the power it can wield. That Succession episode, meanwhile, is what happens when the media knows full well its power and, and kind of wields it like a weapon. There are admittedly uh, fewer jazz flute concerts and glass cages of emotion in succession. So the theory might not completely hang tight, but uh, <laughs> my point remains. There, there was substance in those early films too, things that those comedies wanted to express. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that's crazy. I mean, one of the best films you will ever see about the story of what had the fall of the news media 
is a, a comedy broadcast news. It's a rom-com comedy. And I routinely point people towards that movie. If you want to know what happened to our news media, because younger people, you know, we had a moment in Anchorman 2 where Ron Burgundy is the first guy to cover kind of a frivolous car chase being filmed by a helicopter and we screened the movie and the beat played okay but we realized that people under the age of 40 had no idea that the news didn't used to be like that that it wasn't kind of bubblegum distraction or shilling for big money so we put a voiceover line in there saying like this was the first ron burgundy was a genius you know and i remember the focus group was like that that was one of the main topics of conversation was people saying i had no idea and uh so yeah there there's a lot of like you can really kind of sift through film history from the past 30 years or from the past 50 years. And you could put together a whole history of, you know, I I don't want to just say America because it's so much bigger now than America. A lot of this stuff did start in America, but it's now global, uh, the kind of financialization of every aspect of life. Um, But yeah, they're, they're the movies that I would choose for that history would surprise some people. Yeah, I absolutely adore broadcast news. And uh, yeah, that's a really illuminating reference point for your films, for sure. I should ask as well, Adam, you described how your storytelling started to shift in response to all these big tectonic shifts in society that we began to see around kind of 2007, 2008. You've also mentioned previously that this particular moment in our history requires a new storytelling type, as you put it. And yeah, I'd love to ask you a few questions about what that new type of storytelling is and how it's manifested itself in your work. Um, Maybe we could begin with the way that you have taken a bit of a blowtorch to the idea of the three-act structure, Adam. It was something uh, your, your, your films of old used to cling to, but no more. So yeah, what felt unsuitable about the three-act structure in our current climate, Adam? Can, can you talk me through the rationale behind switching to a more unconventional way of structuring your stories? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's something I've thought a lot about. You know, if you go back and you look at movies from the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, even in kind of into the 60s, It's really interesting because it's the period before the art of screenwriting really became polished, known, disseminated, tested. And there's all these movies that by today's standards look broken. Uh, African Queen is one of my favorite ones to watch. The, The act structure in it is just bizarre. It's like a two-minute first act and then an hour and 15-minute second act and then a third act that's like eight minutes long. Like, I I can't remember the exact ratios, but it's a really strange structure. And there's all kinds of movies like that from that time that were really popular and beloved but follow none of the Sid Field 
three-act structure rules. So at one point, you know, I certainly have written many scripts that follow the three-act structure rule because it's a really good guideline. Uh, In general, the flow of a story does tend to rise fall, zigzag, and then resolve, you know, that kind of basic structure, sort of like a three chord, three minute song, like, yeah, that still works. We respond to that. But I kind of became aware of the idea that like, wow, we're really in a time, like in an actual present tense reality that in some ways I haven't caught up to as a a filmmaker and even as just a person walking around the world because it all moves so fast. Um, The sort of hyper jump into, you know, full naked, unabated capitalism, legalized uh, corruption, influence peddling, the profitization of all these aspects of our lives, and then the resulting effects of this, which have just been, you know, spectacularly awful and uh, surprising and weird. Like the you, you know, the United States literally legalized synthetic heroin. And a million people have died. And like no one really talks about it. You don't really see it come up that much. So, you know, and and Donald Trump sort of smashes all our assumptions about storytelling, this sort of naked corruption. So there are all these kind of things happening, these very extreme forces going on. And the three-act structure or even the idea of the genre of adhering to a genre started to feel old. It just started to feel old fashioned and more decorative than, uh, than, you know, actionable. And he started messing around with, can you combine genres and tones like two emotions that you wouldn't think could sit side by side? Can you, mess with the act structure in a way uh, that can mirror how these forces have messed with and manipulated and played on our sort of inherent storytelling senses. Um, So all of it was done as a way to uh, incite uh, surprise, engage. Um, and I knew going into it, it wasn't always going to work, but I, I really do think the best stuff is when you're trying things and you're experiment, you know, experimenting and you're searching. Um, so yeah, that, that is kind of what led to messing with the three X structure, blending genres, breaking fourth walls in different ways than fourth walls have been broken, playing with the narrator, becoming a part of the movie when you don't think he is. And and a lot of that came from doing the bigger comedies where I would see this sort of surprise and, you know, and energy hit the crowd when something like one of my favorite moments uh, is in the movie that I did with Will Ferrell, the other guys, 
were the two biggest action stars on the planet, Dwayne Johnson at that time. Well, they kind of still are. And Samuel Jackson jump off a building to chase the bad guys and just die. (laughs) And the reaction from an audience in a theater was one of the most incredible things I have ever seen. So, yeah, it's almost like trying to bring that feeling of live theater into movies because they used to be like that a lot more. And by the way, there are still plenty of movies being made that do you know, have that life to it. I, I'm I'm speaking with a very broad brush and probably more so about commercial, big commercial entertainment. But um, but yeah, that was it, it was something I really thought about, talked about, you know, spoke with other writers about my editor and I have had probably hundreds of hours of conversation about this very subject. That's so interesting. Um, You you mentioned there the legalization of synthetic heroin and the million deaths it resulted in and the kind of maddening fact that nobody's talking about it. You seem to have taken it upon yourself as a filmmaker of late to to kind of talk about those things that no one's talking about and and the quite dense bureaucratic machinations that, that lead to those things in the first place. There's a line at the beginning of Vice that this all reminds me of that I think is a really interesting kind of skeleton key to to understanding that strand of your work at the moment. In this voiceover, you describe how as the world becomes more and more confusing, we tend to focus on the things that are right there in front of us while ignoring the massive forces that actually change and shape our lives. You're obviously talking about, you know, your subject matter of that film at that particular moment. But it also feels like maybe you're describing the thing you're trying to rebel against in in films like Vice and and The Big Short. You're trying to get people, it seems from the outside, to talk about the things that we don't talk about, the actual forces that shape our lives, to, to go back to that quote. Can you remember when it hit you that you wanted to start doing that, that you wanted to start addressing the the legalized synthetic heroines of our world, so to speak, in these comedies and and yeah, what felt so important, so vital about doing so? Well, one kind of the important thing with all of the ideas that uh, myself and my team are playing with is that we're learning. We're, it's such a complicated system, and it's so smart what big money corporations, billionaires have done. I mean, there's a book by Kurt Anderson, which is well worth a read. And it's called The Evil Geniuses. And it's the story of the rise of big money against the people. And it's really brilliant what they did. So with each of these movies or shows or, you know, documentaries that we produce, we're learning about how all of this works. And I would say the one thing I would probably change from that vice line. Like, I think it's true that that narrator's line, but I've learned after don't look up that way more people understand what's going on. It's just the veneer that it's wrapped in by our news media, our leaders, uh, industry commercials, 
that's telling us that it's no big deal that synthetic heroin was legalized and, you know, by some metrics, a million people have died. But real people understand that um, on a day-to-day level. I mean, communities have been decimated through these opioid deaths. I'm, I'm just using that as one example. There are a dozen examples that are just as big, if not bigger. But um, but yeah, that that people know. And there's a really interesting thing that results, which is I've noticed in the U.S., and you've probably seen it a little bit globally, people talk about this kind of swing towards anti-science. You know, there was a big thing against the vaccine for COVID. And our liberal, neoliberal corporate elite were, you know, wringing their hands or lecturing about how stupid the people are and how misguided. And then I realized like, oh, wait a minute, from reading some articles and some statistics that a large part of that anti-science thing came from their doctors for years telling them it's okay to take time-release synthetic heroin. And that for most people, their number one engagement with science is their doctor. Um, So all of a sudden, once I saw it through that lens, it was like, oh, so yeah, we're learning. I, I think part of it is human nature. We definitely have tendencies and flaws in our lenses in the way we perceive the world. That's been well chronicled. But I more and more, and especially after Don't Look Up, I really feel like, oh, the people do get it. Uh, And they are frustrated, angry. They feel powerless. Some of them are stepping out and challenging the system. It's just that the dominant narrative we're being told uh, through the mass media machine is that everything's fine. Mm. I didn't really answer your question. So your question was, (laughs) so why have I decided to take this on? Uh, It's a really quick answer because it's really thrilling challenging and wildly entertaining. I mean, these are the books that I read where I pick them up at 9 p.m. and I'm up till 5 a.m. because I can't put them down. Um, Or like watching an Adam Curtis documentary and you're like, I can't believe someone made this. And, you know, when you go back to sort of speaking to the direct reality it's really freeing it's infuriating it's funny uh it's empowering and how about when we talk about this new storytelling mode of yours adam like a a part of that is this very frantic intercutting of media library footage that sometimes invades scenes in your movies like you you populate your films with these very fast cuts so, uh, you know, in, in Don't Look Up, there are sort of all these cutaways to insects and life on Earth. Uh, in Vice, the, there's some shots of golf courses against a backdrop of forest fires. And, and these shots feel very reflective of the noise of living in 2023. You have all this kind of disparate information that's speeding at you as it does in a social media timeline. I, I think I read that it was your editor, 
Hank Corwin, who helped inspire that style on The Big Short, but it's something you seem to have run with in subsequent movies and, and doubled down on in really interesting ways. Can you talk to me about how now, in 2023, you tend to deploy it in your script and, and, and what it represents to you as like a storytelling tool? Yeah, I, I, I found at some point that in writing these movies or producing things that the traditional, you know, villain uh, and, you know, antagonist, whatever you want to call it, started to become a little boring for me um, because it, it forces you to, you know, individuate kind of the forces of the world that are so dynamic and terrifying and interesting right now. And I found myself, I kept putting montages in the movies, even back to the, the more absurd comedies showing the media's reaction to what was happening. So when I met Hank Corwin, uh, the brilliant editor, uh, who's, you know, worked on JFK tree of life, like, all these, you know, spectacular, ambitious films. He and I sort of like our big thing that we connected on was I wanted to make the news media a character in movies because it is a character in our lives right now. It's in the room with us. There is a dominant moneyed narrative that is walking around every day with us, influencing what we're saying, uh, or at the least uh, fighting against what we're thinking and feeling. And that includes commercials, billboards, uh, large, you know, for-profit news media, uh, elected officials uh, giving speeches, uh, pressure from industry and the job that some of us work in. There's a lot of unspoken things being said. So Hank is probably one of the few editors, wild, ambitious, and talented enough to take on this almost impossible task. And so, yeah, it, it's it's something every movie we play with, we try and do it a little differently. We're trying to always learn from it. And uh, because it's just, you know, and, and social media, of course, uh, has become more and more of a part of that character that we're trying to depict. Um, so, Adam, I, I should ask, like, we should wind it back a bit. So you had this explosion of hits after you finished on SNL, and it, it was like a, a personal moment for you, but it was a moment for the culture as well. Like Step Brothers, Anchorman, that sort of succession of comedies that came out that you and Will worked on together. I mean, they're responsible for so many quotes and, and moments that just exist permanently now in the culture. I'm, I'm curious when you kind of ref reflect back on that period, is, is there one thing in particular that you take particular joy from, like how embedded those films became in American comedy? Like when you think about the legacy of those films, what stands out to you as something you're either super proud of or kind of amused by? Talk me through it. You know, probably of all of them, and it's, the, it's funny because it's the one movie that people would probably say, oh, there wasn't kind of a point of view underneath it. It's just silly. 
But Step Brothers, to me, is the one that's the most wild. It's the one where we cared the least. It's the one where we kind of took the biggest leaps uh, and it gets the craziest. And it's funny because I would actually say (laughs) of all of those movies, if you want to understand America in 2023, watch Step Brothers. Um, so the other movies, I mean, we were we got a point of view on Step Brothers. I mean, we were, you know, we never would say it out loud, but now it's been years. But our idea was just like consumer culture turning us all into children was kind of the idea. And that's why throughout the movie, if you notice, they're drinking like bright, bright blue drinks they're playing video games and but uh, also we just wanted to go into like raucous laughter like the kind of laughter where you start to laugh and your laugh gets weird and you're almost embarrassed by the pitch of your laugh which i've had it happen like seven or eight times in my life And they're the greatest memories when the laughter just really becomes out of control. So um, that was uh, our crazy dog is barking. (laughs) I'll let you guys edit out this junk. I don't know. I feel like the dog is making, who presumably is called Baxter, wants to be in this episode of Script Apart. By the way, we're talking about Step Brothers. One of my favorite little jokes in that movie is that the testosterone of the two lead characters turn a guide dog for a blind neighbor into like a rowdy beast. It, it only shows up a couple of times, like three times, but that, that made us laugh so hard that these guys are so wild that the poor blind neighbor's guide dog starts to become a wild beast again. And uh, uh, But yeah, that movie... That movie is the one I like if it's on, I'll still watch it. I love, you know, it's also our worst reviewed movie um, by far. Um, And I learned a lot from that kind of reaction from audiences versus critics versus the establishment. It it really was like, oh, interesting. Um, It's the only movie we ever had where a critic later said uh, I was wrong, like not that much later, like six months later, because critics do it all the time for a movie like 10 years later. But this guy did it like five months later, re-reviewed the movie. I've never seen that before. Um, So it was really that movie, everything about it, like laughing every day. We just totally, to use a boxing term, let our hands go. Um, And so, yeah, that one, when I hear lines from it show up or people sometimes will text me and be like, I was feeling crappy last night and I just watched Step Brothers. But I love all of them. And, you know, each one of them is kind of its own experience. Certainly Anchorman was my first feature. So I always have like huge love for that. And the experience of making it was just incredible. Um, But yeah, Step Brothers probably the most... I like I for lack of a better term, kind of 
I don't know what, like punk rock, I guess, or garage band, terrible garage band, just cranking away. <laughs> um, and, and there's, I've, I've goofed around when I was younger in terrible garage slash punk bands. And I don't know if there's anything more fun <laughs> than making like just honest, horrible music. So uh, that that's kind of it's just got like a warm personal place for me. It's funny. It's it's a film I've seen nine billion times, but when I when I rewatched it the other day, I think it was the first time that I noticed the the sort of tightness to the film from a story perspective. Like, I mean, I I, I guess I'd just always been too busy dying of laughter at Brennan calling himself Nighthawk to notice. But, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I'm curious, like, you know, there, there is, there's an emotional heartbeat to that movie. There's character progression, like structurally, everything that will pay off in the final act of the movie is introduced and seeded in the opening act. I, like, I'm aware that you and Will were, were coming off SNL where you've been making mostly short form sketches. Like, I, I'm curious how, like, how you managed to crack the code for making something that sort of hung together as more than a succession of funny scenes. You know, we definitely learned uh, as we went along with the movies, uh, we got better and better at it. But the other thing is just, and it's really simple, is I always have loved movies you know i took screenwriting classes in college i was always goofing around even when i was writing sketches i would always treat them like mini stories and and but most of all i just watch uh, I, I have watched and still watch tons and tons of movies all different kinds and People are always surprised by the movies I like. Um, you know, that light and sound poll asks you for to rank your 10. And I put my 10 movies. And I remember hearing some people like, uh, or someone sent me some exchange about like, you know, he likes those movies. And it's like, I, I had forgotten that people think of me as the, you know, stepbrothers, you know, big comedy or these kind of, different kind of uh large movies we've been doing lately but yeah i just i'm voracious with films and i've watched tons talked about them also i've done rewrites on movies uh even before anchorman so i and, and even collaborated on a couple of unmade scripts so there's a fair amount of experience and knowledge at that point um and we definitely learn the more you can get that story to hum, the easier the laughs will come because there's you're on an you know you're on an escalator going up. Um, so times where you know the story would sort of flatline, it's really hard to have anything be funny because the audience would kind of feel abandoned by the movie. We of course found that even funnier <laughs> when the movie would just stop for an absurdist bit it would make us laugh more but i mean one of the funniest scenes i've ever been involved in filming was a scene we did at the it was it played towards the late second act of step brothers or was it early third act might have been an early third act 
And it was a scene where Adam Scott as Farrell's boss with Rob Riggle, who was playing kind of Adam Scott's uh, right-hand man. Rob Riggle had an actual heart attack uh, while talking to Farrell, but was too kind of tough and cool to let anyone know. So he covers up a heart attack. And then he actually dies for a second in the scene, but the whole time is playing it <laughs> off like, I'm fine. And you're the one who's, you know, messed up or whatever. And we improvise the scene. And he, I think it's the funniest scene we ever shot. And we couldn't get it to work in the movie because of where it sat in the story flow. And we we did not give up. I mean, we did like six recuts of it. And finally, it's just every time it was in there, it was just killing us. So it's on YouTube. You can actually find it because it was put in the extras. But oh, my God, that made me laugh so hard. And Farrell plays it brilliantly as the straight man. I love how Farrell is able to be really funny and drive the comedy but he's also a brilliant straight man. Uh, if you really kind of sift through all the stuff he's done, he's quietly like one of the best straight men ever. And that scene is a great example of it. Well, I'm really glad that we we touched upon improv there and how that's something you you sometimes explore on set because I've heard you describe before this theory of the third thought. And I'm fascinated by that concept. Um, can you explain that phrase for listeners, Adam? Uh, it obviously stems from your background in improv before making the leap to scripted, but um, I'd love to hear the the degree to which you're still applying it to your work today, even when when writing on your own, even when writing films that don't strictly feel like comedies anymore. Yeah, it's a term uh, that I did not originate. It comes from a, a famous improvisational teacher named Del Close. And his reasoning was, you're on stage, an audience has showed up to improvise, uh, to watch you improvise, and you have a duty to do more than most people would do because, you know, everyone jokes around, everyone has a comedic instinct or certain things that make them laugh. So Dell's idea was you got to go past that first thought, get to the second thought. And the effort of doing that uh, is tough because it, it does fight your instincts. And the second thought will be pretty good. But once you've kind of broken three free of the knee-jerk kind of habitual response. It's the third thought where all the good stuff is. So he would make uh, us stand on stage during uh, classes and rehearsals, and he wouldn't let the performer uh, go any further until they said their second thought, said their third thought. Here's what's funny about it. It's, it's completely against all of the central tenets of capitalism because he would have students would quit because it's a miserable process. Like it's actually hard to do. The more you do it, the faster you get at it. Um, but they're like, he would have classes where 
tons of people would drop out. They hated it. Uh, I remember the woman, uh, Sharna Halpern, who ran the theater, said that she couldn't have him teach the intro class because he would chase away all the potential future students and performers. And later, I read uh, the books by Kahneman and Tversky, the neuropsychologists, and they talk about the idea, and Daniel Kahneman Tversky's passed away, but Kahneman's last book is literally called Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow. And in a very scientific way, he identifies what's going on when you do that. Uh, when you think slow as opposed to fast. And uh, and it turns out your heart rate goes up a little bit. You sweat a little bit more. It's uncomfortable. Um, whereas thinking fast is where you're just behaving and reacting according to your preset thoughts and beliefs. You're more of like an animal flow and it feels really good. Um so, yeah, it, it definitely and people that came through that Chicago scene in the 90s uh, know about this. And the people that got really good at it, uh, you can always tell there's just certain improvisers like a guy by the name of Ian Roberts, uh, Kevin Dorf, Tina Fey was trained through this and you can just tell right away that they operate under that they'll close set of rules he also had a lot of uh rules about collaboration how collaboration works and that's informed a, a lot of what i've done for years in terms of other influences and practices that you carried forward from those early days adam do, do you still find your writing routine is the same as back in those early days or uh as your material has edged more into drama, and of course you've worked more on your own, is it totally different now how you sit down to write? Uh, wow, I hadn't really thought about that as far as the actual process of writing. Um, yeah, it's changed in some ways. You know what's a really funny thing that changed? Just the music I play when I write changed um and it changes kind of dependent on the mood you're getting into you know if i'm writing something that's more assaultive comedy i'll definitely play a certain kind of music whereas if i'm writing something like in writing the ending of don't look up i found myself playing music where i was like oh that's odd why did i play that and it, it, it's it's just a matter of what feels right uh, from, you know, directing and being on in post on movies. I have a giant, you know, catalog of music on my computer, just all kinds of music. So uh, it's interesting when you ask the question I mentioned to someone a while back. Like, wow, I was listening to X, Y, or Z music, which I've never listened to. So that's probably most reflective in the change in process. You mentioned the ending of Don't Look Up There, which uh, we have to discuss. I, I love that ending. In fact, I, I love the film. Like it's, I'm so grateful it exists because it made me feel so much less alone in the, 
in the kind of like Cassandra complex that it's easy to experience around the climate crisis and the the indifference to it, the inaction around it. The film captures so brilliantly the frustration of feeling like you're the mad one for being so worried about the catastrophe that that seems so obvious to you is is unfolding in front of us. Uh, there's two great lines in that final scene. Obviously, there's this Leo's line, we really did have everything, didn't we? Which whew, hits like a truck. But um, the line I think about even more often is Jennifer Lawrence's line in that same sequence as they're kind of going around the table saying grace. She says, I'm grateful that we tried. And I wondered, again, like that line in Vice that I brought up earlier, whether you might have been speaking to yourself on the page in, in some way that day when you wrote that final scene, whether whether for you, all this kind of new breed of filmmaking that, that is grappling with these big issues, whether this is you trying, whether this is you uh, kind of trying to do good by a responsibility that you feel as an artist with the platform that you have to at least try to alert people to, to some of these issues. Yes, partially. No question. I feel like as someone who makes stuff at this point in time, I personally can't imagine making things that don't at least let the time we're living in, you know, blow through whatever you're making. There's different degrees to which you know, we can go at the times that we're living in. I don't think there's any one size fits all uh, model for making a movie or writing a book or a painting. Like it's going to be a personal process. What, what I feel is just the idea of making movies or doing whatever I'm doing and pretending that the things that are happening aren't happening and adhering to sort of old aesthetics and storytelling models. I, it's not something where it's high and mighty on my point. Like, look what I'm doing. I just can't do the version of writing a movie that would have played great in 1997. It just, it like, I I start to feel crazy. I start to feel bored. Um, So yes, that part of it is I'm doing, I'm trying to do everything I can. And that relates to the work uh, I do through climate emergency funds, supporting the activists, uh, the incredible, incredible activists uh, relates to our non-for-profit media company that um, a yellow dot were trying to fight the dangerous, dark misinformation from big oil and and uh, bad faith news media. So, yes, that all fits into that. But also the other side of it is I I do find it. like exhilarating and exciting. Um, And that's really kind of always been my compass is do what you're interested in, what you're excited in and what you're drawn to. And in that sense, it's just kind of happened. Um, 
that, you know, I read the big short and I read it in one night. I couldn't put it down. And I was like, wow, I don't know if I've ever read a book like that. It was thrilling. It was a page turner, yet it was illuminating, informational, you know, challenged my worldview. And so I, I, I do think a lot of it is still driven by the, you know, Kahneman's thinking fast, uh, where what feels good on a muscular level, but then because everything's so insane these days, another part of it is consciously trying to be aware of what I'm doing and then blending those two feelings. I mean, don't look up really for me is the, like, that's like, what I have to say. I mean, the feeling I had, I have and had is that we're living in an over the top farcical comedy and that it is going to have a dark, tragic end unless we change the course of what we're doing, which the good news is I still think there's a lot of things we can do. Um, but that that was exactly how I've been feeling, is that the stuff that's going on is so over the top and preposterous and ridiculous. But then let's not forget that we're not guaranteed the happy ending of a comedy. I've been asking quite a lot of questions about the content of your work, Adam, but uh I think it's it's important to also acknowledge the sheer volume of it recently as well. Like, it's quite staggering when you think about it, uh, the fact that you've kind of produced TV shows like Winning Time and Succession. You've been producing movies like The Menu, Barb and Star and Hustlers. You're also making podcasts these days like Death on the Lot and Death at the Wing. And all of this on top of, you know, your, your typical work writing and directing your own films. When you look at that prolific rate at which you've been shepherding stories into existence on screen right now and in podcast feeds as well, I suppose, uh, what do you think is behind how hard you're working, like the sheer volume of storytelling that you're putting out into the world at the moment? Mostly it goes back to what I just said, which is if you love something, if you're interested in something, if you're excited by something, you know, we're lucky enough to get to do what we do. Um, and it doesn't feel as much like work. Doesn't mean it's not work. Doesn't mean you're not exhausted. Doesn't mean it can't be stressful. It certainly can. But mostly it's just that engagement and excitement drives a lot of what we do. So the other big thing, too, is we, you know, we have a production company and Hyper Object Industries, and there's really good producers there. Um, you know, Todd Shulman produces a lot of our documentary. Kevin Mastic, uh produced along with me, Succession, Winning Time, and a host of other. Betsy Koch produced... Um, the menu, which I love, she found that script. And um, uh, Maeve Cullinan's incredible, our creative executive. So all these people are doing a tremendous amount of work. And then my, you know, I'm involved for sure. And probably my most crucial role is 
I'm the final word on what we do. And, and then I'm involved through the process, giving notes, but yeah, there's no way there would be a list of things like that, that I'm involved in without a crazy good team. I mean, 90% of the trick to directing or producing is just having, it, it sounds like a cliche, but it really is true. Get good people. And everything becomes easier and more enjoyable. And the the work that you do just gets better. If that's like how you're managing to be involved in so many great projects at the moment, Adam, having that support network around you of talented people, what would you say is the kind of why of it all? And I, I guess where this question is leading is um, I'm aware that on the set of Vice, you unfortunately suffered a heart attack. And um, I had this recent episode in my family in, involving a heart attack. And um, I was quite surprised by my response to it, like uh, just being adjacent to it, that that reminder of mortality. It definitely lit a fire under me and it sharpened something in me where I didn't want to waste any time anymore. I, I felt this urgency to tell as many stories as possible and, and make the most of the time we have. And yeah, I, I wondered if that was maybe the case for you like when we look at how prolifically you're working right now there's a degree to which like that event in your life impacted your storytelling and and changed you as a storyteller in any way i hope that's not too personal a question no no it's not personal uh too personal at all i've spoken about it before um i i think people that know me i i've always been pretty voracious for what excites me. I do think the one thing, you know, with that heart attack, I, I, there was just a lot of bad habits to how I was taking care of myself. Number one by far was smoking. Uh, and sadly I still cheat and have a few cigarettes a day, but back then I was a full on half a pack. Sometimes a pack a day smoker. And it's really simple. If you do that, your arteries clog in your heart at a much greater rate. Also, you know, I love good food. <laughs> so you start mixing <laughs> excess weight with smoking, you're going to have a heart attack. What was crazy about it was having it in the middle of making vites. I mean, that was just absurd. And you know, the shot the actual footage of my heart attack is in the movie oh really? there's the yeah there's the i can't remember what they call the the camera they used to take the image but they they did an image of the clogged artery in my heart and thank god the heart attack wasn't huge and there wasn't really any significant damage done to the heart so after the recovery and kind of the shock, I asked the doctor, can I have that footage? And Hank Corwin, edit, it's in the movie. I'll let people find where it is. But that's my actual heart having an actual heart attack. I don't know if I've ever said that publicly, but um, that is true. Adam, um, I've, heard of, I've heard of putting your heart and soul into a movie, but come on. <laughs> I just remember thinking, oh, holy crap, if Dick Cheney outlives me, <laughs> like, <laughs> I just, the horror of, of that, by the way, he still may, that guy 
He doesn't. I mean, Henry Kissinger is still alive. So who knows how long Cheney? I, I don't wish ill upon anyone physically. I don't wish Cheney well in his life, but I certainly don't wish physical harm upon him. But um, uh, yeah, that was I remember laughing about that. Just like, holy crap, Dick Cheney's going to outlive me. But how did it change your approach to storytelling? Did it did it impact you in that regard? Yeah, I remember having a really distinct feeling the next day in the hospital bed. My wife, Shira, and my daughters, Lily and Pearl, came to see me. And Lily gave me a card where the card was originally like congratulation or or a congrat oh no it was a condolence oh no no what was oh it was congratulations on your promotion and she crossed out congratulations and wrote i'm sorry and then instead of promotion wrote heart attack so the card read I'm sorry about your heart attack. And I laughed so hard. Even the doctor laughed. And I just remember having this feeling of like, man, there's nothing better than a good hard laugh. Like, and I was kind of smiling all day and just in a really good mood because I hadn't died. And yeah, that that changed a little bit. And I think in some ways that's what led to Don't Look Up, which is somewhat of a return, not a full return to the the, the Anchorman stepbrothers stuff, but certainly like an overt comedy, like no question about it. And it just came from the fact that I want to laugh on set. I want to have laughter be a part of what we're doing. And then lo and behold, COVID hit. And when we were making the movie, it turned out everyone was dying to laugh. And everyone, you know, was really suffering and feeling like a lot of tough emotions. And so all of the cast, the crew, everyone just wanted to laugh. And it turned out to be perfect. Adam, I'll ask two last questions, if that's okay. Um, I want to ask, like, it, it's not on you as a filmmaker to to fix the problems that you have been pointing out through your work, but kind of making the movies that you have done in real, recent years about the kind of corrosive systems of money and power that are uh, eroding the lives of everyday people have you come to any realizations at all about where where to begin, how to fix this stuff? Like, has it led you to any conclusions into what might actually be a course of action for any of this? Yeah, I mean, what's crazy about it is the answer is really simple. And I said it when we got the Academy Award for a Big Short when I was on stage with Charles Randolph. If you don't want leaders that are controlled by banks and weirdo billionaires and oil companies, don't vote for leaders that are controlled (laughs) by big banks, oil companies and weirdo billionaires. But obviously, it's way more complicated than that because they are very good at getting us to fight each other over 
you know, what sex uses what bathroom or, you know, what books are in a library or my religion's better than your religion or my skin color is better than your skin color, you know, all these ways that they divide us, distract us. But the answer is really simple. Find out how much the person you're going to vote for or support is taking in money, who they're getting the money from, and react accordingly. But every bit of our culture, our news media, is designed not to push us towards that moment. I mean, I I know it's a little different in the UK, but our news media here never talks about who's getting what money, ever, ever. Like the New York Times just doesn't do it. MSNBC, CNN, all the major papers. The only time they'll mention it is if someone gets busted for really flagrant actions. Like this guy Menendez got caught like taking gold bars. Like it was so cartoonish, they kind of had to cover it. But that's the key because that's why we're not taking action on climate. These leaders, it's the same in the States as the UK around the world. We have the Democrats, we have the Republicans. They're both owned by the same big money. Their game is different, how they reach out. Uh, I know in the UK, Labour and the Tories. I mean, the same revolving door jobs, the same. It's They're all coming from the same place. So that really is the single cord that if you pulled it out of the socket, in, and really, we all made our focus about that. That would have the most tangible, immediate change. It would also be fun because you would see these money, you know, captured politicians and news outlets. They would shriek like a vampire with holy water <laughs> thrown on it. I've had little experiences <laughs> like it, and they do not like it. They get angry. They get dismissive. They get personal. They hate it. Um, So yeah, through everything I've done now, it's obviously more complicated than that. Uh, You talk about certain governments where, you know, a tyrannical dictator is taken over or they've rewritten the laws to cut out even the potential of democracy. But I, I then think the other thing I've learned is disruptive, you know, civil disobedience activism is essential. Without it, we cannot have functioning democracies. Uh, So the two things are, it's the money, which I know everyone knows, but the hardcore action is how much did that person take? Who did they get it from? Do I really want to vote for them? Usually that'll push you into the primaries and making sure that guy or woman doesn't get to the general election. And then the second thing is do what those Parisians do so beautifully. Hit the streets <laughs> with frequency, vigor, and make it loud. Peaceful marches don't really do a lot. Make them noisy and disruptive. There's a long history of it working with civil rights, the labor movement, on and on and on. So those would be the two big things. And then the third thing I've learned from doing all this is the climate emergency is no joke. 
It is now, it is a thousand times bigger and faster than most people think. And it scares the absolute crap out of me. And we should all be doing every single, well, first off, if I say that and you're like, oh, settle down, buddy, trust me, go spend 15 minutes reading the actual scientists. Don't read uh, op-eds or listen to elected officials. They're, you know, they're not doing anything. But, you know, I've spoken to the scientists, read all the data, and my end result was holy crap. My end result was the movie Don't Look Up. (laughs) So, yeah, those are three things that are kind of concrete, you know, like, all right, all right, I'm starting to kind of see this a little bit. Um, no one person can ever understand it, but there's those are three kind of truisms, pillars of kind of reality that I lean on if things get really crazy. Let me close out, Adam, by asking, what comes next for you? Like, I'm, I'm aware that average height, average build is is next up, or so I'm led to believe. Like, can you tell me about that? And can you tell me about where else you want to venture in terms of this next chapter of your career? Well, actually, tomorrow I go and I'm shooting a really exciting project. Uh, It's going to be shot in three different countries. It's a commercial for Exxon. And what (laughs) I actually once made that joke. Almost had me. (laughs) I I actually once made that joke on a uh, podcast. And back when I did social media more, my timeline filled up with people that didn't get the joke and were like, you're a hypocrite. And I'm like, I I thought that was clearly a joke. Um, We have a bunch of things going on that we're producing through hyper objects. Um, We have a documentary called Daniel that's going to get released on HBO. I can't remember the time frame in like five, six months. And we're working uh, on uh, the feature Average height, average build, as you said, Um, we're coming out of the labor action. So I can now write again. But our our compatriots in uh, the Screen Actors Guild are still in their labor action. So we're respecting that and staying away. I'm staying away from my actors. And uh, but that's the next one. Uh, And it's a comedy again. Um, the, the premise is public, so I can say it. It's uh, essentially a serial killer finding it hard to kill people with, you know, cell phones, door cameras. So he hires a kind of bottom dwelling state lobbyist to start tweaking the laws. And uh, <laughs> it's pretty funny. It's obviously dark comedy. But, um, yeah, I'm excited about that. That's the big one. And then every day I'm doing stuff with yellow dot i wrote two short pieces that were just filmed that we're gonna edit i i usually don't direct the stuff and a lot of times i don't even write it but i have these two ideas so we just film those and i gotta see the rough cuts um there's a few other things i'm sure i'm forgetting i'm trying to remember we have so much at hyper object a bunch of projects that were in the works when uh, uh, our guild went on strike, that now we're kind of getting back into, I have a pile of scripts I have to read that 
um, you know, uh, uh, supporting uh, WGA and respecting the picket line. I didn't read any scripts, give any notes, talk about anything. So I got to get back into those. Um, but yeah, that's about it. And then losing sleep over the climate emergency. I really, uh, that's on my schedule. I got to get to work on that. <laughs> yeah. That'll keep you busy. Well, Adam, I've absolutely adored this conversation. Um, thank you so much for coming on Script Apart. This episode is, of course, dedicated to that poor person that had to change seats that day on the airplane. I apologize <laughs> if you're listening, whoever you are. Um, but yeah, Adam, thank you so much. It's been an absolute blast. Al, uh, a real pleasure. Uh, thank you for the really thought-provoking questions. This was fun. <laughs> Oh, it's been, the pleasure's been all mine. Um, I, I've been Al Horner. You can call me Nighthawk. This has been Adam McKay. You can call him Dragon. <laughs> Thanks everyone for listening. You've been listening to Scripts Apart. Thank you so much for tuning in. A reminder that if you want to help the show continue to grow, you can join us on Patreon by visiting patreon.com forward slash or clicking the link in today's show notes. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next time.